0: Adore him, oh, come, let us adore him, oh, come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. In First Samuel, Chapter Four, it starts off like this. Now, the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer, the Philistines at Aphek. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel, and the battle spread. Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. Now, if you know this story, because I'm not going to read the whole story, even though I think it's readable. I'm just not a very good reader. The story goes like this. There's a battle, and they meet together, and the Israelites lose. And they say, we have forgotten something. We are losing, and we have forgotten something. And so they go to Shiloh, and they bring that something there. And do you remember what that is? the Ark of the Covenant. They say, they bring it there, and they say, it it comes to the point, they bring it into the camp, and do you remember what they do? It says they shout so loud, and you can read this, I, I want you to read this text later. They shout so loud that the Philistines in the other camp feel it. And to the point that they start shaking, and they say, What can we do? What is this? What can we do? Because the God that delivered them from Egypt is there. And one of them gets up and and gives them a pep talk and said, You are Philistines. Get up. Come on. They were your slaves before and they'll be your slaves again. Let's fight them. But remember, the Ark of the Covenant is now in the camp. And Israel is pumped. And the Philistines are pumped. And they have a great battle. As never seen before. And 30,000 Israelites die. And the Philistines take the Ark. With them that doesn't make sense they had God in the camp and they lose or so they thought well Eli if you follow the story Eli is sitting at the edge of his seat now it's probably like a a little bench or maybe even a it's not like I'm assuming it's not like a rocking chair or anything it could have been a rocking chair and he's sitting there, and it says that he could not see real well, but he heard something. He hears somebody coming, and he's, he's waiting. What's going on? I know there's a battle, and my two sons are there. And he's sitting there, and he hears the guy coming closer and closer. Hey, you, tell me, are, are you from the battle? Yes. I'm sorry, sir. Your sons are dead. But what about the ark? It was taken. And it said because of that, he fell backward, and because he was a heavy man, he broke his neck and he died. Now, one of his son's daughters, so his daughter-in-law, was pregnant. And when she heard the news of this of this battle, and, and, and it says it's, it's because of the ark, it's not because her, her husband died. So, because the ark was taken, she goes into this high stress mode and she has a baby, and she calls the baby what? Ichabod. Because the glory of the Lord has left. So what ends up happening is they switch modes. So that's what's happening in Israel. But now they change scenes to what's happening in, Phil- in Philistia. And they, and they take the ark because the ark is their trophy. But it's their God. And we do know that this, this ark has done some major things. And this God did split a sea. So it would be good if he was on our side, right? So they take him, and they put him into the house or the temple of which god? Do you remember? Dagon. So they take him, and they put him in the house of Dagon. And they said, we, we are gathering gods. And, and this is a good thing. They put him there. And, and overnight, you know, something happens. And in the morning, when they come to worship, they open the door. And, well, That's strange. Because there is Dagon. But he's not standing. He's down like this. So a couple guys come and, and lift him up. And I'm sure they do their worship. The next morning they come back in. Oh. Well, that's not a good thing. Because Dagon was the same position. But he was missing his hands. In his head. But that's not the only thing that happened there. People started getting sick, <clears throat> and they started getting tumors, and people started dying, and, it, and, it, and they're dying to the point that they know it's from this God, from this box that's in our—there's a box here that's killing us. So they said, what should we do with this box? Why don't we give it to the, our brothers in the other town? Isn't that a, a great thing to do? Hey, we're get, we've got something that's bringing disease. Why don't we give it to some of our relatives? You know, and maybe some of you feel that way about some of your relatives. But it's probably not the thing to do. But they say, maybe they can do better with this. So they, they send it to the next town over. And the same thing happens. Thousands of people are dying. To the next point that they, well, let's get rid of this thing. Why'd they give it to us? They send it to the next town. And, and it comes to the point where they're like, why are you bringing it here? We heard that thousands of people are dying in your towns. Why would you give it to us? And it kills thousands upon thousands in these towns. And they kept it for Seven months. For me, I'm like two days of people dying, I'm getting rid of this thing. All right? I'm not going to keep it for 7 months. But they keep it in the Philistine territories for 7 months. And finally, they're like, let's just get rid of this thing. And they want to do it honor, cuz it is a god to them. It's, you know, it's a god that's in a box. And they make a new cart. They make this cart, and they got these, these, these cattle, these good cattle, and they put it on the, on the cart. Now, again, thousands upon thousands of people have died. And they still say, I guess we're not really sure if this was happenstance or if, you know, we really did something against this God. So we're going we're gonna to test this out. If it goes towards Beth Shemesh, then I think it was God. But if it goes the other direction, well, then we just had some bad luck. You know, thousands and thousands of people dying at this time. It was just bad luck. So they put it on there. And as you know, the cart did not move off the path. And it went towards Beth Shemesh. And they said, okay, it's from God. And the people of Beth Shemesh said, wow, the ark is back in our territory. And they cheered and they shouted and they cut up those animals and they cut up that cart and they, and they sacrificed and, and they said, praise the Lord. And they said, let's look into the ark. And they look and thousands die. This is probably the inspiration for the movie of Indiana Jones. They look into the ark. Ah! Thousands die. And they're like, why is God doing this to us? We're Israelites. And finally, the ark ends up in a place called kiriath Jerem. And it stays there. Now, I don't know if you know this, if you know your, your, your biblical history real well. The ark, from the beginning of chapter 7 of 1 Samuel, the ark is not mentioned throughout all of Saul's reign. This is pre-Saul, by the way. You know that, right? This is still Samuel's reign because they don't ask for a king until right after this. In all of Saul's reign... Is arkless. The ark is on the fringe of Israel. Just on the very outside. I mean, it's part of it, but not really. So then you go to 2 Samuel chapter 6. You have to go all the way to 2nd Samuel chapter 6 to see what happened to the ark. It says this, David, in verse 1, David again brought together out of Israel chosen men, 30,000 in all. He and all his men set out from Baalah of Judah to bring up the ark of, the, of God, which is called by the name Hashem in Hebrew, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim that are on the ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab which was on a hill by the way was this the way the Lord had commanded to carry an ark no whose model did they follow to carry the ark the Philistines the Philistines did it it looked good let's do the same thing Let's see how it turned out. Let's see. Um, with the ark of God on it, and Ohio was walking, Ohio, not Ohio, was walking in front of it, even though Ohio's in my heart, David and all the whole house of Israel were celebrating with their might before the Lord with songs and with harps, lyres, uh, tambourines, cistrums, and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out to take and and took hold of the Ark of God because the oxen had stumbled. uh, If I find this. Then the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore God struck him down and he died there beside the Ark of God. Then David was angry because of the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day, the place is called Perez-Uzzah, a breach of Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of, of the Lord ever come to me, back to the center? He was, not willing for, he was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. So he said, over the whole reign of Saul, it's been on the fringe. I want it back in the center, in the capital. Now if you know, the chapter before this, David had just been anointed as Israel's king. Judah said, we will have you, but Israel finally said, we want you. And he said, the first thing I want to do is I want to bring the ark back. The ark belongs in the center. But the problem is that Israel thought God was in this box. This is my God. This is how big he is. And where I take my God, that's where he is. And maybe if I rub it, He will come out and he will grant me my wish. Are we not so superstitious with our idea of God? How many of you grew up, if you grew up Christian, especially Seventh-day Adventist, grew up with the, remember it was like a brass, Ten Commandments on the wall. Do you remember? It was on wood and then there was brass. I I think a lot of Seventh-day Adventists had that. Where it was like, and it, it just had, sort of a bridge 7th I mean the 10 commandments on there how many of you know people that have worn a cross around their neck or had pictures of Jesus in their house and they feel somewhat safer that God is there because of a picture or a necklace Or some kind of carving there. We all have put God somewhat in a picture of what we think God is like and what God wants. And even them, they said, do you think that maybe God doesn't want the Levites to carry the ark? Wouldn't it be nice if we built this Cadillac of a of a cart And carried God in that? Isn't that what he would want? And God says, "Eh." No. You follow what I command and you will be blessed. But if you don't, no matter how good you think your intentions are, it's not what I said would bless you. Now, here's where the good part comes. Part of, you know, we had just done a series on, worship, on, on uh, purpose. I believe God has created within us, within our purpose, a yearning to worship. Do you agree? A yearning to worship. But here is the challenge. Many of us think we know what worship is, but we do not consult really what Scripture says about worship. Do you understand that? Let's, we'll get to it. The way you understand this is by looking at what Scripture says. Now, I want you to know this. Before I get to the Hebrew, because you knew I was going to bring some Hebrew here. Right, David? You knew I was bringing Hebrew here. Okay, you were waiting for it. I could tell he was waiting. He was sitting at the edge of his seat. I want you to know that the word translated worship, and you have to wait for the whole statement, is not a biblical word. Worship does not come from the biblical text. Worship, I'm not saying it's not a biblical concept, but it is not a biblical word. And I will get to that in a second, what that biblical word that it's usually translated worship from, what it really means. Worship means to ascribe worth. So I'm not saying it's not a biblical concept, but this was given to any kind of ranking officer or magistrate that you would say, I am giving honor to you. You are worth more than me in a sense. So I'm not saying that that's not a biblical concept, but we have translated it this and it's not a biblical word. Because if you go to the first word here, if you go to the words, the first word, does it? Oh yeah, it does do that. The word is shecha. Can you say shecha? Shecha Shecha literally means to prostrate oneself to the ground. To kiss the ground in Hebrew, I mean in Greek, proskuneo. It means to kiss the ground. And the meaning behind this is, I came from the ground. I am crucified in Christ. It is not me who lives, but it is the Lord Jesus Christ who lives within me. If I have life, it is because I claim that I am dead and God fills me. It is a posture. It is not a state of mind. If you understand that the reason we have come to this point in our temples, in our, in our synagogues, in our to do this and say quietly and and maybe if you feel so inspired you say amen. This came, believed to be, historically from Stoics. So there were people in Rome that were, and and even pre-Rome, they had coliseums and they had these, these joyous occasions And they would say, these Stoics said, these people are rabble rousers. We need to be opposite them. So they said, let's let's be as opposite of them as possible. So they said, we will want silence within our gatherings. It was not a biblical command. It was a man-made command that says, be silent. We'll get back to this. Oh, by the way, this is this is translated a hundred times as worship, but it literally means to prostrate oneself. Sometimes it does say that, like when it's the same word that remember when uh, David is on his march to to kill Abigail's husband, and and she gets before him and bows to the ground and says, "Please spare him; he's ignorant. Please don't do this." Let there not be evil in your heart against him. The second one. The next word is yada. Say yada. Yada. And what yada means is to cast a stone. Actually, the word yad means hand in Hebrew, it means to stretch out your hands. And it's used mostly in worship. Actually, it's translated a lot of times as thanksgiving. And you'd think the root of thanksgiving is hand because the posture of thanksgiving is outstretched hands. Huh. The next one is Shavah. Can you say Shava? Shava means to cry in a loud voice to the Lord, to cry out. And finally, in the spirit of Yadah, the last one in this slide is Nassah. Can you say Nassah? Nassah was literally to pick up an animal to sacrifice and lay it on an altar. But do you see where my hands end up? Like this? Actually, as some Hebrews will say, do you remember, even in... um. In, like, when they called them cowboys and Indians, now, now probably cowboys and Native Americans or whatever you want to call it, if you want to be PC about it, when they say "stick them up," what did that mean? What was the posture? Yeah, show me. This is the posture. I surrender. This is the posture. I, I want to read a couple of verses to you just to emphasize that posture is at the heart of biblical worship. Okay, so the first one is Numbers 20, and we're going to do this a little bit rapid fire. Numbers 20, verse 6. Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance of the tent, to the tent of meeting, and fell face down, shachah and the glory of the lord appeared to them they fell face down they did not sit there and say amen first chronicles 29 verse 20 says this then david said to the whole assembly praise the lord praise the lord your god so they praised the lord they all praised the lord the god of their fathers they bowed down prostrating themselves before the lord and king Nehemiah 8, verse 6 says this, Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, amen. And they bowed down and worshipped and the, Lord, the Lord with their faces to the ground. I know that got cut off, didn't it? Oh, no, it didn't. It did in my slide. Psalm 28, verse 2 says this, Hear my cry, Shava." for mercy as i call to you for help as i lift up nisa my hands toward your most holy place and then psalm 63 says this i will praise you as long as i live and in your name i will what lift up my hands Psalm 134, verse 2 says, Lift up your hands. Where? Really? That's charismatic. Lift up your hands in the sanctuary and praise the Lord. There is a picture of a vision that some people in here probably recognize. This was believe the context is her first vision. And if you don't know who this is, it's a lady named Ellen White. And if you've ever read some of the stuff that is claimed by Messianic Jews about Ellen White, they actually say they believed she was Jewish in some of her writings. They were convicted about her writings because they saw the stream of Jewishness within it that mainstream Christianity had lost. Maybe that's why she was convicted on a seventh-day Sabbath. Because she knew, I will be biblical no matter if it goes against what everybody of the culture sees is right. And here she is lifting her hands and this is this posture right here is nisa receiving from the lord psalm 100 verse 4 says this enter his gates with thanksgiving which is toda or yada is the root and his courts with praise give thanks to him and praise his name I want to say this before, go to the next slide before we continue with our Hebrew words which some of you are excited, some of you are not I don't know if you know this and and the reason I, I have this I pulled up one of the articles that I read about this how many of you are teachers? any? teachers? teachers at heart if you're a teacher once, you're a teacher always How many of you have known that there has been, for years, for decades, actually, there has been, there have been studies done that say movement in academics actually reinforces learning more than sitting and getting. Yet, the model that we still traditionally use is you sit, and we lecture, and you do not move, and we expect you to learn more. But that is not how we're created. Do you realize that? And do you know that that these, actually these studies are worried because they're taking away, for academic time, they're taking away PEs, physical education, recess, moving things to insert mathematics and English because we think they need to learn math wise. Let's just give it to them. Give it, give it, give it. And they are not moving and they are retaining less. This was one of the articles that I read about, about movement and obviously all, everything that I highlighted is not highlighted anymore on my PDF. But I will read A little bit of this that I remember from the article it says this anatomical evidence of this the area of the brain most associated associated with motor control is a little part right back here and it's called the what cerebellum the cerebellum it is located in the back of the brain just under the occipital lobe and it is the size of a small fist tiny fist The cerebellum takes up just one-tenth of the brain by volume, but it contains nearly half of all of its neurons. This structure, densely packed with neurons, may be the most complex part of the brain. In fact, it has some 40 million nerve fibers, 40 times more than even the the highly complex optical tract. Those fibers feed information from the cortex to the cerebellum, and they feed data back to the cortex. Now, what they're saying here, as you read on here, is that this closely ties with how people learn. And actually, these are the first, the earliest developing, because it's the most necessary. Your motor neurons are the most necessary on how to learn how to survive. Let's read this. In Connection, just how important is movement to learning? The, the vestibular, vestibular, sorry, inner ear and cerebellar, I, I'm assuming that motor activity system is the first sensory system to mature. In this system, the inner ear's Semicircular canals and the vestibular nuclei are an information gathering and feedback source for movements. Impulses travel through the nerve tracks back and forth from the cerebellum to the rest of the brain, including the visual system and the sensory cortex. You learn by posture. Do you know that there are, um, there are studies being done and, and actually educational models being done where kids that are, are sort of a little bit higher risk, what we consider high risk kids, that they are not allowed to be in the classroom. So what they'll do is they will take a football and they will study information by throwing a football back and forth where they were only getting 10% of that information, there are studies that are saying they're getting up to 90% retention rate of information while moving. And you know that posture affects how you think. The way your body moves affects what happens here, what happens here. Our model in education, and I dare to say our model in church, might not be the way we were designed. I say that as the preface to my second half. Let's go to the next words. Machah is to exalt by What? By clapping. This was for the victory. Now sometimes if you read in scripture, there are times where it was used over somebody that you were victorious over and you, you are, they are now your slave. Yes. But sometimes it was directed towards the Lord. We are victorious because we're your children. The next one is shamach or ranan or ruah. Which means to whisper in rejoicing. Is that what it means? To do what? To shout. Or as Bill Merman does, just talk. Because he's a little bit louder than everybody else. To shout in rejoicing. Rachad or machol, which get your stones out for this, means to lap, a leap, skip about. Or dance and the last one and you know the, this root is halal where we get the word hallelujah it means to praise or to rave I love that definition to rave or to celebrate let's go through some of these texts and I Psalm 1 or Psalm 47 says this clap your hands all ye nations Shout to God with cries of joy. Psalm 98, verses 4 through 6 said this, Shout for joy to the Lord. All the earth burst into jubilant song with music. Make music to the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the sound of singing, with the trumpets and the blast of the ram's horn. Shout for joy before the Lord, the King. Exodus 15, verse 20, says this. After the Red Sea had split, Then Miriam the prophet, Aaron's sister, took a timbrel in her hand, and all the women followed her with timbrels and with Pathfinder uh, marching. No, they danced. Sorry, it's biblical. We could erase that from there. Psalm 150 says this. This is the end. This is the last psalm. Praise the Lord. Praise God in the sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his acts of power. Praise him for his surpassing greatness. Praise him with the sounding of the trumpet. Praise him with the harp and the lyre. Praise him with timbrel and dancing. Praise him with the strings and the pipe. Praise him with the clash of cymbals. Praise him with resounding cymbals. Very loud. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And you might say, Pastor Kent, why would you preach this? Don't you know that if you say that there is dancing, by the way, that context was praise him first. Where, was, where, was he, where were they supposed to praise them? In the sanctuary. Don't you know that there is risk to introduce that lifting of hands or, or prostrating themselves or even, God forbid, dancing is an act of worship? Don't you know that there is risk that people will go out the clubs if you say this and they will dance. And and if you do wonder about that, then you better ask God, don't you know, God, that there was risk at putting pleasurable nerves near the reproductive system? That people were going to pervert this by doing this? You created them wrong. You created us wrong. Don't you know that there is risk that with God creating a law that there would be legalism? You knew that, right? God knew that there was still risk. Don't you know that there was still risk that God says to show what my son will do we will have an animal sacrifice. And people would take that to the nth degree and do human sacrifice. He introduced something that was for good and people perverted it. It happens with everything. Do you know, a couple of churches ago when I was in Wichita, Kansas, there was a church that rented from our church and they would not use musical instruments, none. Piano, guitar organ, anything, and their reasoning was, these have been used on the enemy's territory, so we do not want them in our worship service. And guess what? They're right. They have been. But there goes the baby well, with the bathwater. And sometimes I wonder, because I've been to several messianic services where they do they dance around the kids. Because this is the most controversial one. That's why I'm telling you that. They dance and they say a blessing, Baruch, atah Eloheinu melech ha-olam, over the kids. There is nothing impure about it. It is beautiful to see. And I do wonder because we have not we have altogether avoided things like dancing let me ask you this have you ever had music playing whether it's christian or not and it's a little bit more a beat and an 18 month old what do they do they move did god create them wrong They move because they are created to. What if, here's my what if, what if God intended for people to move and because we said I will avoid that because of the danger here, the risk, and they are created to go here, they go to the wrong kinds of movements because they were never taught the healthy way. This happens in sex. This happens in every area. When we do not teach them the healthy biblical way, they say, well, I am created this way. I will go anyway, and I will have my friends teach me. But maybe God is saying, no, no, there is a biblical way. And so you might ask, well, maybe that's just cultural. That was just how God worked there. They are within the biblical words, by the way. That word cultural is the same excuse I have heard when, when people have said the Sabbath is cultural. Those things are cultural. The, the health laws of Leviticus 18, those were cultural. Those were to the Jews. The language throughout scripture is to worship God with your face to the ground. Now I'm going to say this also. I'm not making a prescription here. I'm just showing you the description of what happened in scripture. The reason I say this is I have been in my own personal devotion. I will bow down with my face to the ground. When I'm giving thanks, I will lift my hands. In my, at home, I've, I don't know how many times I've danced. But between me and the Lord, I have no problems with it. I am just saying this to you, that at times when I have been in a congregation, and I have done it, I have lifted hands in front of, and I know, I think I feel sometimes the stairs because I'm up front. But this is the way that, at least for me, the Lord has called me to worship. I will stay biblical. This is important to me. And I, and I want to ask you to at least explore this scripturally. Explore it. It doesn't mean you have to do it. But prove it wrong. That biblically, worship is a posture. Now, we are not done with David. David because I want to complete with David. I want to I finish up with David. And I'm sorry if I've taken up too much of your time, but we're going to back to chapter 6 because it is incomplete that David leaves in Obed-Edom's house the Ark of the Covenant. So in verse 12 of chapter 6, it says this, Now King David was told, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has, because of the Ark of God. So David went down and brought up the Ark of God from the house of Obed Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and fattened calf. By the way, if you read the Chronicles uh, account, several. Every six steps, they killed tons of animals. Every six paces. David, not wearing his royal garb anymore, wearing a linen ephod, danced before the Lord with all his might, while he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city, Mikael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window, and when he saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place and set it inside of the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offering and fellowship offerings before the Lord. Now, here's the thing most of us don't understand why David danced, and why was he stripped down to his skibbies? Why is he almost naked? And so you think, Mikael, because she's angry, right? And you read later, she says she's angry because he flaunted himself in front of the maidens. But that's not really what's happening here, why she's so angry. Here's the thing. In ancient Mesopotamian culture, what they would do is if there was a battle and I captured somebody from that battle, you would usually have a parade. And at the front of the parade, probably behind the king, or if he's following in the back, would be prisoners. And the soldiers would prod them with spears, and they'd strip them down to nothing. They don't have armor anymore. They are stripped to nothing. And they would dance before the assembly they would dance as slaves before the assembly. What David here is saying is, I am dancing with all my heart because the God is, I mean, the box is not my slave. Did you see before, the box was the slave. If I need you in battle, you come to me and you help me win this. You go wherever I take you. But David said, no, no, no. I dance before you because I am a slave to the box. I am dancing because I am the slave. Michal is angry because she is the daughter of a king, married to a king. And if he's a slave, what does that make her? A slave. She says, I don't want to be a slave. And you read what David says here. He says, in verse 21, David said to Michal, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified, lightly esteemed, whatever your says, than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. I will be the lowest of low slaves and I will dance before the Lord as a slave whenever it's needed. No matter what anybody else thinks. It's between me and the Lord. Maybe this is what God is waiting for in his people. For us to be biblical No matter if the rest of the world, no matter if the rest of in here thinks we're crazy. I want to be biblical, period. In every aspect of my life, worship included. I will not follow the Stoics. I will not follow the the Pharisees. I will not follow the Pharisees that said this, that did this after the second casting out of the, of, in the temple. This is, by the way, a book called Desire of Ages, if you've ever read it. And it says this. After he cast them out, it says, The sound of these happy, unrestrained voices was an offense to the rulers of the temple. They set about to putting a stop to such demonstrations. They represented to the people that the house of God was desecrated by the feet of children and shouts of rejoicing. Wow! you guys are desecrating the temple because you're letting the kids shout. That's what the rulers of the temple said, and Jesus was allowing it. That is our prophet who says that. The call is for us to be biblical, and I do wonder, as if we would become undignified no matter what, would the spirit be able to do greater things within his assembly? I'm going to call the worship leaders up here. We're going to sing a song that is not in your hymnal. Maybe several of you guys know this song. It's called Heart of Worship. And this song is written by a man named A. Uh, Matt Redman. And if you understand what Matt Redman was going through, is he was a worship leader for years. But he realized that he was going through motions of worship. He was just, he was just going to church, doing the same old stuff, and he was realizing it's empty. And so he, one day he just broke down and realized... I want to get back to God's worship where it affects mind, soul, body, heart. And so he wrote this song out of a yearning to get back to the heart of worship. So we're going to sing this song and I I do want to open the, I want to tell you this, after I do Aaron's blessing, after we sing the song, I know that there might be questions, there might be things that you want to Talk to me about maybe vent about whatever. I will remain up here so that we can talk for a few minutes afterwards. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance toward you and give you peace. Father. Put within our hearts a desire to follow you, no matter if it's going against all of the crowd. May you be glorified through our lives. May we prostrate ourselves before your throne and cast our crowns there. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Shabbat shalom. Happy Sabbath.